and welcome. This is a special extra episode we're doing. We've been playing Albion with the club in December. So we're going to do a normal episode on that. But on this particular episode, we have got two guests that are actually developers of the game. So yeah, that's neat. Normally we do like a history development section in the normal podcast, but now we can just ask what happens. So that's even better. So I'm Martijn, Tijn on the forums. And sadly, Florian is not joining us because he wasn't able to get into the game. But we have a fantastic replacement, and that is Jozef. Hello. Hey, and, and you um, are a big fan of Albion, aren't you? Yeah, I, uh, for a long time I thought I was the number one fan. But then when people started coming to the forums, I realized, no, no, no. There are people who are way more into it. <laughs> They're super fans. <laughs> yep, I'm on a Discord server. It's not going to And... Uh, yeah. yeah, that's it's really cool. There are definitely Albion super fans. So. They know their stuff. But I mean, even better than a super fan is Eric Simon. Hello, guys. Hey, is it Eric Simon or Eric Simon, maybe? Well, it's an international name. You can pronounce it uh, as ever you want. In, in German, it would be pronounced uh, Eric Simon. Yes, exactly. But Eric Simon is totally fine. All right, that's cool. And, well, you've worked on Albion, but you've also worked on Amber Moon and also on Amber Star and also lots of other stuff, so... Yeah, lots of other stuff. I think I've got like 40, 45 shipped games uh, on my career now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was more or less involved in uh, the creative uh, side. I was an uh, evil producer in, in a lot of them. But uh, Albion was one of the games that I was... Uh, creatively involved uh, with uh, the most. That's awesome. Well, we definitely want to hear all about that. Now, also joining is fellow Dutchie and lead programmer of Albion, Juri Horneman. Hello. Hello. So Eric just mentioned he was involved with over 45 game releases, in, uh, including Albion, of, of course. So it's the same for you, Juri, isn't it? You were involved with Albion, but also uh, Amber Moon and also Amber Star and also lots of other stuff. Yeah, yes. I've uh, been making games for nearly as long as Eric. Uh, don't know if I've shipped as many titles, but yeah. Uh, Emberstar Athelion was my first first game I worked on. Eric will happily tell you that he, he hired me because I liked, yes, uh, the progressive rock band. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, then we made Ember Moon and then we went to Blue Light and made Albion. That's perfect. And then, yeah, no, no, you know, I've been making more games since then. Exactly. And I think still active in the in the game industry now, right? Yep. Yeah, both of us are. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely get to talk more about that in the end. I kind of want to start with the real beginnings, though. Like before Thalion Software, even. Eric, weren't you active in the demo scene? Yes. Yes, I was. So I basically I started with computers as early as you could possibly do that, hacking around in in basic and uh, playing Space Invaders in ASCII graphics on a PET 2001, the Commodore pyramid-like metal thing. If anyone still remembers that, and um, I had a friend that had an Atari 400XL, and that totally freaked me out, and uh, I was like super fascinated. And later I got a C64 and um, got to know a very good uh, friend of mine who sadly passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and we started to get creative on that one. And then we uh, really 
started to be creatively involved on the Atari ST, and that's exactly uh, the 16-bit times was when uh, Italian was uh, co-founded by by me, my friend, and, and another guy. Mm -hmm. And there we, that was the beginning of my professional career with, I remember adding uh, my first paycheck that we gave ourselves was like 1500 Deutschmark, which is barely enough to survive. <laughs> but hey, it was a paycheck. And so that's where I started counting in 88. Yeah. And that was in 1988. So what age were you more or less? I must have been 25, 26, I guess. So fresh out of university, maybe, or? Oh, not really. Um, I, my, my last actually piece of paper where it says what kind of profession I uh, uh, have is radio and TV technician. All right. So I learned how to, to repair TV sets because I started with 12, uh, pulling them out of the the bike trash and figuring out how to, to fix them. Nevertheless, uh, I had a civil service in Germany, which took ages. I hmm. uh, was like nearly two years then. And then I studied for one semester, mm -hmm. uh, electrical engineering. And when they tried to make us calculate the position of an electron in a static energy field in the first semester, I was like, maybe I should rather do computer games. <laughs> Um, okay. And nobody really knew if you could make money with them. Mm. And I didn't care. I just started. Yeah. Right. And that that was that. That's cool. And you founded Thalion Software in 1988, as you mentioned. Yeah, co-founded. Co yes. There was like 15% share or 20% on remember. Right. And then how did you get started with making games? Did you just come up with a game or did you, how, how did that work? Well, um, as, as you already mentioned, we were part of the demo scene. So the programming and uh, getting the most out of graphics and all of that, uh, we learned that as a hobby. Uh, we learned as we, as we went, as so many people. And um, Udo and uh, myself, Udo is the guy, also one of the co-founders, the uh, good friend that I mentioned is uh, sadly not alive anymore. Mm. Uh, we started with a role-playing game called Dragonflight as a hobby. Right. So we were big fans of the Ultima series and it's a combination of 2D and 3D. Mm -hmm. And we were like, okay, so these are this is the best RPG series in the world from this company there in, in the US. Obviously, the two of us can do way better on a 16-bit <laughs> machine um, as a hobby, yes, not not even as a profession, mm -hmm. um, and so we we started and uh, we came along sort of yeah and uh, asked more and more of our friends for help, uh, but at some point we had to realize, of course, it was either dropping the game and focusing on our whatever we currently did, uh, job, civil service, whatnot. Mm -hmm. There was the one way or the other. So game game or conventional career. Yeah. Um, for me, there wasn't a question. Right. So you went all in with the game stuff. Yeah. But Dragonflight is not Thalion's first release, is it? Yes, because it took us uh, quite a long time, of course. Uh, it was a big game. Mm -hmm. So the first release, I think, was supposed to be the shooter Warp. Mm -hmm. there is, there is a, there, that was my first my first of many 
industry uh, stories where we learned that publishers are better in business sleaziness mm. than developers mm -hmm. uh, because our publisher back then uh, he saw that we were exceptional talents and uh, we signed the games and we had the contracts and whatnot but what they actually did that they held back in distribution uh, uh, for a while of our first games which made us run out of money which gave them the possibility to buy us more or less cheaply mm. so that's why there was a certain disparity between the order that we created games in and the the order that they came on the market at least at the beginning because right i suppose that that uh, was their uh, strategy back then mm. and you had no control over this not really because we haven't hadn't got a clue about business yeah we were easily fuckable <laughs> if that is allowed as a term in this podcast. Sure. Right. So, yeah, pretty green, pretty fresh, just no clue, but still making stuff and making cool stuff. So, I mean, that is a good start, I suppose. So is it around this time that you met Yuri? Or like, I'm just wondering, how did Yuri enter the scene? Maybe Yuri can just share his like origin story. How, how did you start out, Yuri? Uh, it, it's actually pretty similar to, to Eric's story. Um, as soon as I started seeing, you know, the Atari VCS, uh, early consoles or computers, right? I, I, I was fascinated. I saw listings for basic in a CAG magazine, you know, a popular scientific magazine in the Netherlands. I had occasional access to a Philips video pack 7000, which is a very sort of, well, not the most obscure console, but not super well known, you know, off the time. It's, it's not a Nintendo now. Well, it, yeah, it's not a Nintendo. It's it's like, you know, I guess it was popular in the Netherlands being Philips. It's, I think it's called the Magnavox Odyssey 2 in the US hmm. or North America. But anyway, it came with a cartridge that was called Computer Programmer. And you could basically came with the schematics almost of the, the CPU. And you could type in like hex code to make the thing do stuff. Wow. This is like more primitive than assembly language and that you didn't even, you know, like you were just typing in like weird numbers. Uh, and for some reason, you know, like I was like 10 or 11 and that, that was like the coolest thing in the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then there rounds. That's cool, Yuri. I didn't know that story or I forgot it over the decades, but yeah, no, I didn't know that. I, I just recently found a YouTube video of that cartridge in, in action and I, just, I still can't believe, you know, because the, the output, the screen that you could sort of put things out on was six characters wow like not even pixels yeah it was like you know it was like a glorified pocket calculator mm -hmm. but you know i didn't really get into computers until 1985 when i got a, a sinclair zx spectrum and started you know it came basic started programming basic started getting into uh assembly language then switched to atari c uh then you know started hanging out with people who were like hey there's this thing called demos so have you heard of this i'm like no and then start looking at it and go like wow this is this is amazing. Can we do that? Wait, there are these guys in Germany who are writing regular articles in a German computing magazine about how they do this. And I didn't actually speak German, but I was able to sort of figure out. So these are articles written by by Eric and, uh, and his friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, sort of figuring that out. And then, you know, my my origin story is similar to Eric's in that, you know, I finished high school and I was like, what am I going to do? I don't really know. Well, I, I hear computers might be a thing. Let's go study computer science at uh, Technical University in Delft. I realized that because I was like, hey, computer games, right? <laughs> and then it's like, wait, I'm learning about 
electronic circuits and yeah. Pascal programming, and, and I can already do assembly programming. And, and difficult maths. Yeah. Difficult math, exactly. I recapitulated six years of high school math in like a month or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And then at some point I was like, this sucks. Uh, this is boring. Also, it's very hard. Uh, so I, I dropped out. I said, like, no, I want to make video games. And I had no clue. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd been wanting to do that for, for a while. And, um, so I, I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to drop out and do video games. And, uh, and, you know, and just to make a little bit of money, I worked at McDonald's, uh, three days a week. Nice. Which, you know, was, had been my certification job. Then there was a, a demo event, a demo convention in the Netherlands and, you know, a bunch of people I knew were going, I went along and, um, Valian was there. Right. Mm. And, uh, you know, cause it was like close to Germany, right? Yeah. Most of the distance is close to Germany. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, there was this job ad for like a programmer at Feli and I oh. started looking at it and go like, huh, me work for the man for a big corporation. Nah, no, you know, <laughs> that's not for me. Too early to sell out. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then a friend of mine goes, a friend of mine goes like, yeah, aren't you technically out of a job? And I'm like, <laughs> I guess technically I am out of, you know, cause I, I, with adults, right? So I was like, well, maybe we'll grumble. All right, let me uh, talk to the Valiant. So I uh, I talked to Eric and uh, showed him my source code because I had my, my computer with me. And there's actually a video of me showing that to Eric because oh. there was a video recording of that whole event. And somewhere in the background, you can see me pointing to some source codes. Nice. Uh, full, full disclosure, I couldn't read head or tail of this source code because, well, <laughs> that, that's another story, but I'm not a great programmer. <laughs> Yeah, I think you were able to see that uh, I was not as good as the the demo makers, you know, because you know the, the people at Valiant were the best demo programmers on ST in, in the world, right? Mm. And you know, doing completely impossible things, and, and you know, I was just like a solid programmer, right? Uh, but in, in some ways, you know, because I didn't like come up with like crazy hacks to do make the machine do impossible things, I just did solid things that were generally used useful, right? That actually made me maybe more suitable to be uh, a game programmer. Hmm. So uh, at some point, I, I noticed that Eric had brought a fancy novel that that I had read. So we talked about that, and then he he asked me what kind of music do you listen to, and I said yes, I listen to. And he's like, well, uh, for, you know, uh, Eric has told this story to many people, so by now I know how he tells it. So. This 19-year-old kid to listen to the SLS Zeppelin can be bad. You know, let's hire. <laughs> That's exactly what it was because you you, um, you guys need to understand we were surrounded by a lot of demo programmers and such. It wasn't that we got like a million applications or so. Mm. But um, in, in terms of technical proficiency, um, I was always surrounded by a lot of really capable people. Mm. And so in order to make a decision, you just have to solve try to get a personal connection and I was like, wow, um, I would have never thought that uh, someone that young listens to the, this old ass shit <laughs> that I love, that I love as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The cultural fit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This guy, <laughs> this guy must be awesome. That's higher. <laughs> and the cultural fit was much more uh, precise back then. It's like, oh, you like this band? Okay. Which era of this band? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You like the ADCS yes or? <laughs> exactly. There's a big difference between old yes and, and new yes, but yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, uh, Yuri, yes. you said you don't want to sell out, you don't want to work for the big corporations, but big corpor- is, is Thalion really a big corporation at this point? No, I was being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, I know, but <laughs> I mean, how big of a corporation is Thalion at this point? It had two offices, oh. one of which I slept in. Uh, 
How many have we been, Yuri? Like 12 people or so? Yeah, everyone at their own office. Mm -hmm. Some people share maybe, but most people at their own office. Yeah, because it was an, um, a practice of some some doctor and had a lot of little rooms. So ah, yeah, the glass glass wall. It was very cool. Actually. Oh, that's already the new one where you uh, moved in, not the old one. Yeah, yeah, the new one. The new one was fancy. Yeah, yeah, that was that was nice. Yeah, and this was in Germany, right? In uh, Gütersloh, I think. Yeah, and so did you move to Germany? Yeah. So basically, you know, this demo event was before Christmas, nineteen uh, ninety. Uh, then on January 6th, I took the train to Gütersloh and, you know, met some people and uh, the inimitable managing director of Sally and took me out for lunch with Eric and then urged me to drink plum wine and then made me sign a contract, <laughs> uh, which is the first contract where I was making like an actual, like normal salary. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I, uh, I, I went back and uh, I had the option to sleep in the old office at first and, you know, we, um, bought some stuff and strapped to my dad's car and he drove us, uh, drove me over and then, you know, I, uh, I moved in. Yeah. So I moved to Germany. Nice. Yeah. So for you, it was your first job making games, making like your start of your career. Do you remember which game you started working on at Thalion? Yeah, that was um, Amberstar. Oh, that was actually Amberstar. Yeah. Wow. But Eric, I mean, Amberstar was obviously not your first project at all, or even your second, or even your third. So you were going for a while at this point. Yes, um, and it has also to be said that in Amberstar, my uh, participation was limited. Hmm. Uh, it was the brainchild of uh, Carsten Kuper, mm -hmm. um, another German guy coming from not that far away from the Ruhrgebiet area. And um, he had, uh, in hindsight, the pretty cool idea um, of having a basic-based editor system. While we were all hard-coding ah. Dragonflight, for example, you had this editor system where uh, you could put in a lot of data and a super, super limited, like five execution steps or whatever, 10 or 12, uh, sort of uh, uh, very simple scripting part. In any case, he um, had this game started in this editor already, but he wasn't an assembly coder who could actually code the cool front end, let's say, yeah. uh, himself. And um, that's where it clicked. Yeah. So we saw, hey, this editor, a cool idea. And um, he was the, the main creative guy on that one. So later when we did the second part, Ember Moon, um, I jumped in uh, much more. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I remember correctly, again, Yuri, you must support my rotten memory. Um, <laughs> I didn't have creatively all that much to do with that particular game. Yeah, that's how I remember it. Yeah. All right. I am interested in the origins, though, of Amber Star and Amber Moon. I mean, I understand that in a way it's a continuation of Dragonflight. I mean, not really, but some ideas are not really except the whole thing of uh, combining 2d and, and 3d which mm -hmm. we always liked because there were advantages for exploration and then immersion yeah um, and uh, but that's pretty much it from the story standpoint it doesn't have anything to do with we we shoehorned in some sort of little crossovers or something like that but they weren't really connected no. So did you come up with, I mean, you, not you, but did Thalion come up with Amberstar 
all on its own. It's like an original IP. It's not based on anything or... Yes. I would say it was all all Kasna, really. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like so many games, it was heavily influenced by um, the standard fantasy tropes. Yes. Um, but only Yuri and me, after a couple of years, were a bit... Uh, put off about that, which is a very elegant bridge to to Albion, by the way. <laughs> um, but um, other than that, hey, this, this is done even uh, still today. So it was a very classic fantasy scenario, mm-hmm. but uh, with, done with loving details, which this editor also allowed. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about the Amber series is that Carson hadn't just played sort of Western computer role-playing games like, like Ultima, etc. Mm-hmm. But I I seem to he had also played uh, Japanese role-playing games, which, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s was pretty rare. Right. Uh, but it, I see how you know, he had like a piece engine and stuff, you know, he always had like the, the latest stuff. And so there was some JRPG influences in there as well. I mean, you know, he'd be the better person to ask, but yeah. And yeah, his his style, it was very much like, if I like something, I'll put it in. And, and Eric and I, you know, which when we get to talk about Albion, we can talk more about that. But like, mm-hmm. actually, well, a concrete example is in Emmermoon, at some point, you know, we had like dragons and pharaohs and what have you. And then, you, you know, you had these vehicles that you could use to travel around in. One of them was a witch's broomstick. And so it was, you know, anything that's cool, you could sort of throw in. Mm-hmm. And on Emmermoon, you know, there were three, three planets, you know, the main planet and two moons. And Eric did one of the moons. And if you visit that first moon with the broomstick, a two meter tall red hair bearded giant appears and takes it away from you. Uh, you know, that that was Eric. <laughs> because we didn't like the we, broomstick. We did not <laughs> like the broomstick. Which is, you know, probably unfair to players. I don't know. But, uh, you know, like, call it an Easter egg. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I have mellowed on that. Like, I, I you know, we, we did something else with Albion. Um, and I now, you know, later see, like, the pros and cons of each approach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it wasn't like that this was a major conflict, right? Like, we just, like, you know, gently ribbing Carson. and you know. Yeah. So a lot of groundwork for Albion was was there in Amberstar and Amber Moon. More than what you could do these days. I think the, t- the technical foundation was there. Not the story really or anything, but maybe the art style a little bit. I don't know. Well, they were the same people, right? Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, so for the, from the from maybe quickly from a technical perspective, what made Amberstar and Amber Moon sort of unique in retrospect is that Basically, Carson had built like RPG maker, right? Yes, and and he had um, documented, you know, the the data formats that came out of it and and what was supposed to happen. And what I did is I wrote the program for the entire C that would, you know, run the runtime for the game, right? That would take this data and actually make it work. And yeah, and so it was very, you know, it was extremely data driven mm-hmm. uh, to a degree that you know I've not done in almost any other game since. And and one of the the interesting things that I think is you know still super cool in retrospect is that there was a second team in Hamburg who were making the PC runtime, and I met those guys I want to say twice, and I think like you know they or they came by twice and we said hi and they called me once about some algorithm that wasn't clear from you know the data like how would you do that and that's it and we ended up with you know a dental good game right so right and it was a weird kind of like it's not quite porting. You know, it's just like parallel implementation of what ends up being the same game. Yeah, and it, yeah, and then later we did we did do classical ports. You know, the ST version was ported to Amiga and then vice versa. You know, mm-hmm. wasn't it then like double work though? I mean, all the work you put in for the Atari ST 
and them for the PC. Wasn't it a lot of it identical? Well, yes, but I was writing in 68K assembly language because that was the language I knew, right? I, I didn't know C at that time. Pascal wasn't really an option. I, I think Neophalian wasn't a company to release a game in basic, although you know, probably could have for this game. But mm. yeah, you know, so it, it wasn't really written in an easily portable language. So yeah. you know, I guess it, it works out. Okay, so we got some questions from listeners as well. And I think it's best if we just try to weave them in. I would like to thank everyone who sent one in, though, beforehand. So th these were sent by David N, Number Guro, IS4, Hunter Z, Sheldo86, Nine Tongs, and Mr. Creosote. So thanks a lot for these questions. Now, Josef, yeah. do we have any about Amber Star or Amber Moon? I think we did. So we had some, uh, yeah, mainly about like the links between Albion and Amberstar. So one of them was, um, how is it like technically related to its predecessors in like, so in terms of teams, for example, this is the same, same artists. Uh, so you, you mentioned you had this like, uh, editor plus runtime. Was Albion different in this? Like what, what were the, what was the transition there? When we went to Blue Byte, Eric left to keep, you know, I'll keep reminding him that he said this. He was like, for our first game of Blue Byte, let's do something easy. Let's do another role-playing game, uh, which was then, you know, two years of, you know, a lot of work. And we were like, well, we have this editor system. Let's use that, right? And first of all, like, did we have that editor system? You know, <laughs> From a legal standpoint, well, back then, nobody really cared, especially since uh, Thalion actually went bankrupt. There wasn't any... Uh, one who bought the studio or so, there, there were some people who still owned the rights and they sort of sold them in a chain of that is lost in the mists of history. Yeah. But there was not such a stringent legal uh, scrutinization than the, today. So, yeah. Ubisoft lawyers, if you're listening to this, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting thing was that these tools were written in a uh, basic variant that only works in Atari ST. So everyone who works on this had to get a hardware Atari C emulator, which consisted of a software Atari C emulator and then a, a board with the ROMs on it, with, with the OS. <laughs> and then, you know, they had to sort of go into SD mode, edit all their data, save it to effectively the hard drive, I think. Mm. Uh, and then switch to PC and then run the game there. Wow. Was that even true for Amber Moon? Because Amber Moon was only for the Amiga, right? No, I, I think they're, uh, they, people just switch between two computers. Actually, I, I only wrote for the Amiga, so I, I wouldn't know, but, hmm. you know, so, uh, we didn't have a network back then and some of these shared data structures were on a floppy disk. And if you wanted to work on that, you would get the floppy disk, hmm. which is a, you know, very good way of locking access <laughs> to those files. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, so that, that's sort of the, the technical basis of, uh, right. of Albion. Because uh, we got another question, which which sort of ties into it. I don't know if you saw this. It was actually asked today, Josef. Uh, no, yeah, go on. On our Mastodon account. It is sort of about this period, like the transition between Amber Moon and Albion. So the thing is, Eric, um, Amber Moon was not a great financial success, was it? Like most of the Italian games, no, it wasn't. yeah. So I think, is this the game that, that, that was like the nail in the coffin for, for Thalion? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say it's the, the only culprit. We just tried with our last games, 
the, the outstanding ones being Ember Moon and Lionheart to just convince the market with quality. Right. And I think we succeeded in that with both games and we were just quite pragmatic about it. Um, we knew that the platform was sort of sunsetting and we tried to make something extraordinary, hoping that the last people on this platform will go like, hey, this is a title, a must-have title. And it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. That's the Amiga you're talking about, right? Precisely. Yeah. So the question is, we got today, why did you make another RPG at all? And this is Albion. Considering that Amber Moon had, had not been a great financial success. Well, well Blue Byte had a completely different and uh, more successful distribution structure. Role-playing games in itself to the point in time when we were starting, as far as I remember, were still pretty popular, maybe even in their heyday. Mm -hmm. It's just that until we were done with Albion, and again, Yuri, uh, you must confirm or deny, I think the Zora hit uh, a slump. Hmm. That was just unlucky on our part for, for Albion. Uh, but it was just a popular genre and we had the tools and we had the experience. So it made perfect sense to start another role-playing game. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. You know, it, it just like you have the, the, you know, the proven capabilities to do this. Rubai didn't have anything like it in its portfolio, but it was something that, you know, it's, it's not a big step to go from strategy games to role-playing games, right? The nineties were sort of a difficult decade because they were, you know, a lot of big changes were underway, uh, mm. but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think it makes sense. I, I I made fun of Eric for saying let's do one because it's easy, <laughs> but yeah, you know, the the decision made sense. I think. Yeah, because you had the experience and the tools, and yeah. So and and actually, the same person asks another question, which sort of ties into this. It's it's something I I have been wondering about that too. Like Amber Star and Amber Moon are two games in a trilogy, right? In theory, yes. Well, yeah, I, I mean, the, the trilogy doesn't, there's no third game. Yeah, but Carson had ideas, yeah. But there is Albion. So how did, the, the question is, how did you approach the, the formal impossibility to continue the Amber Star, Amber Moon universe established uh, in this third game, Albion, sort of? It's not really a game in the series, but how, how do you see this? Um, so from my perspective, the, this is a little bit you know, what we talked about earlier. Carson uh, left Salyan and, and didn't go with us to Blue Bite. Mm. And so Eric and I, you know, not just Eric and I, but I, I think you know, we, were, we were sort of a big impetus for this, right? We were like, we like a different kind of fantasy story, you know, sci-fi story, a different approach to world building. And that's what we want to do with Albion, right? And, and so it, it wasn't in, I don't think in any way, a sequel to the stories in the world of Amber Star and Amber Moon, but more a, a reaction to it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we, we cared about, I don't know how you see this, Eric, but, you know, I, I think of it as a, a certain form of realism, right? A certain form of uh, consistency. Yeah. And, and, and there's things, you know, decisions that, that we made that I, I remember personally arguing for, like, no, this is the right way to do it. And in retrospect, I'm like, but it's actually arguably less fun than just doing whatever, right? Or, uh, you know, like, for instance, you, you have a named main character and you cannot change the, you know, what they're called or who they are, right? Which is arguably a core of computer role-playing, right? Mm -hmm. But it's better, you know, 
uh, or, you know, quote unquote better. We, we, we felt it was better for the, the sort of the story of the game. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, and you know, I understand when people go like, Hey, certain things are weird or, you know, like, Oh, you, you there's this gun you can find in the spaceship and then you have a massive advantage, but if you don't find it, then it's, you know, it's like, okay, but it narratively is coherent, but in terms of gameplay, maybe, maybe I wouldn't do the same thing today. Right. Um, so, you know, the, it, it was more a reaction to, I think the, the Amber series. Right. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I mean, we we just wanted to make something non cliche fantasy, mm-hmm. like a mixture between sci fi and fantasy. We wanted to um, also try some new things, which in, in some aspect didn't work, like the example that that you gave. Uh, but uh, nobody could tell us better. Yeah, the, that's part of the process. And the other part is that um, as much of from a legal standpoint this might have been the wild west but in continuing a game series of a company whose uh, complete ip rights were given to another still existing company might have been ruled wild west but the sheriff would have gotten us in this case even back then mm. so that, that that was out of the question and um, because we wanted to do something uh, specific anyway, we never uh, tried to encourage the Blue Byte CEO to, hey, let's buy the IP rights or something like that. Yeah. We didn't even want to really make a third part of the Amber series. Exactly. So in your mind, Albion is not a part of this series at all? No, only, only technically, of course it is. Uh, but uh, it's a completely different universe, uh, which is exactly what uh, Yuri and me set out for as as uh, writers. So did Blue Byte interfere with this at all? Like, how did the transition go from Thalion to Blue Byte? We started in the old Gütersloh offices as Blue Byte for a while. I seem to remember it was around a year or so before we actually moved to the headquarters of, of Blue Byte. I think about nine months or so. Yeah. Other other than that, we just continued working with with our infrastructure that got a bit enhanced by uh, Blue White. I think they installed the first Ethernet, and we were marveling at the technological wonders of it instead of carrying floppy disks around. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, but they were not telling you what to do, or no, no, they were very hands off. Huh. That's nice. It is. We have a question that uh, kind of ties into this. Uh, so you mentioned uh, already that you, like Amberster and Maroon, were more like this classic fantasy, and then you made a like conscious choice to basically not do that with Albion. So what was what was what informed the Albion's world building, or were there any other like influences maybe to that you've drawn from? Um, like most games in the 90s, Aliens. <laughs> X-Files. <laughs> so the initial spaceship, right? Uh, that there, I, I think around the, you know, the early 90s, you visited any game development company and they would hi- either have like Aliens lying around like the art book or something or the, the Dragonflight. No, not Dragonflight. Uh, Dragon's Lance. Like, like there were just a couple of art books that everybody had. Mm-hmm. One thing that, that I, I've brought in, which is going to sound weird, but there's a, uh, a novel called... Um, the Mists of Avalon by uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley, which is you know a, a feminist retelling of feminist and pagan retelling of the story of King Arthur from the point of view of Morgan Le Fay, mm-hmm. which I liked a lot at the time, and which which had an influence um, 
in, in, in some of the, the things I brought to the story. Right. I read a lot of fantasy back then and I still do. I can't tell you like exactly one particular thing that was an influence, but I think the sort of Celtic pagan influence, uh, I want to say that partially came from, from that novel. Um, one of the characters was, um, the, I want to say the priestess of the, what are they called? English, the illuminated. Enlightened. She might've been, I, I know that, uh, yeah, during development, she was called Harriet. I don't know if she was still called Harriet and when we, in, in the game that we shipped, but she was basically inspired by, uh, more, you know, Morgan Le Fay, the character from that, that novel. Hmm. I think the word Albion is even from that novel. Mm, no, I don't think so. Or it's some archaic term, right? Well, so uh, I, I this is the, the most embarrassing thing in some ways, but also I think, you know, you know how like when you play uh, Japanese games and they have German titles and and I think there's a similar... Herzog 2. Yeah, Strahl, <laughs> you know, uh, so, so you know, it's all, and then it is, if you know German, it's very weird. Um, and this is like similar and, you know, uh, my, my personal rule for games, which I had realized from Amber Star, like it starts with an A, you're always at the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we were like, well, and we're on, on DOS, right? So if it has eight, eight characters or less, it'll, it'll, it won't get cut off. Right. Yes. So that, those are my, my criteria. And then, I, you know, back then we had no internet. So it was like, Albion, that sounds vaguely Celtic. <laughs> Let's pick that name. And we all liked it. And nobody was like, no, actually it's. It, it means England and there's a whole, you know, there's like thousands of, you know, connotations to that word that, you know, uh, yeah, we didn't know and we picked Albion. And I, and it amuses me that, that a, an Asian company later made Albion online and probably also like, kind of sounds kind of cool. Yeah. Let's use that word, right? It does sound cool. Yeah. It sounds great. Yes. <laughs> it has nothing to do with, you know, Celts or, no. you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, actually, I, I, Joseph, we have a lot of questions just about Albion in general, obviously. So. I think this is a good time to just go through a bunch of them because this will sort of introduce the whole how did Albion came to be thing, right? Yeah, so if we start like from maybe like the questions about like how it came to be, right? Like So yeah. how did you, this was one of the questions, like how did you handle it, the whole design process? So did you have like a director or was it a free-for-all team process? Like how did you go about creating this whole world? Yuri and me were sitting together and... Uh fighting a lot and uh, agreeing occasionally <laughs> and the other team members were like let's try to stay away as far as we possibly can for these guys <laughs> really <laughs> before we get caught in the crossfire not how i remember it but it's it's not entirely inaccurate maybe <laughs> well Torsten was involved some sometimes too but the others were like that's weird shit like okay yeah, we did share an office and had a lot of discussions uh I think the, the initial, so the initial right. title, in case there's any doubt about where this game came from, the initial internal working title for the game was uh, DDT, which is, you know, Das Dritte Teil or Den Dritte Teil, I don't know, like, I don't know. Der Dritte Teil, the, the third part. Yeah. Thank you, yes. This is the, the thing that I never learned, being Dutch. <laughs> and we just had a long list of, uh, you know, this is, all, this is everything, you know, like, starting with Ember Moon, this is everything we want to change. And I actually have, I have the document open in front of me where it's called the DDT improvement setter, which means, you know, notes. And it just has a long list of like, yeah, we want to do this and not do that and get rid of this and that, these things. You have that? Wow. Yeah, I have cool. that. <laughs> is that, is that document 
like public somewhere? Is that just on your computer or? That's on my computer and I have promised people that I would go through them and, you know, the things that are like a, a massive legal risk, um, you know, put them, you know, online in, in the interest of like, you know, historical research. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all in like German and if it's bad German, then it's my German, um, <laughs> you know. Oh, people would still love to see that. Oh, yeah, I know. Like, yeah. And and I, and I like, I, again, I said, you know, I'm, I'm on this Albion fan discord and I could, you know, they're, they're like trying to work out how to sing what was ever. And I'm like, I should really find these documents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, those documents exist. Sorry, that's the ball I would take now. I promise I'll get around to it eventually. But yeah, yeah. It, it, um, well, the other thing I th- that was interesting and, you know, had big impacts on how the game felt was that four or five people on a team, at least it was planned that, you know, everyone would do like a big region, including culture, right? Okay. And so it was very much like, uh, and and I I don't think that was, it, for sure it wasn't clear to me when we started working on this, but later I talked to a, a friend of mine who's a writer, he's like, yeah, this is called, you know, it's called picaresque, right? Where you have a character who just goes from, from thing to thing hmm. and just meets the new, new cultures and meets new, you know, sees new things and has adventures and just one after the other. Yeah. I think like, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, Don Quixote, right? Right. It's just like one after the other. You could put them in any order, right? Yeah. Yeah. And LV was kind of the same in that you go somewhere there, you have some adventure there, you go to the next place. And there was sort of a big plot to try and keep it all together, but it wasn't very, it wasn't the point of things right no. and yeah and, and that sort of ties in with you know one of my fa- favorite writers uh jack vance who who has a lot of stories like that because you know the plot wasn't what he cared about he cared about like weird cultures mm-hmm. um but yeah so that meant that you know eric did some regions uh marcus prokrovsky who who did a lot of the uh editor programming he also did some regions uh tossin Mutrar, you know uh the the other main artists uh he did some it, there were plans for me to do some and um that just never happened, you know, because I was the main sort of runtime programmer, and uh, hmm. you know, we didn't we didn't have no planning whatsoever. <laughs> so uh, there was never time for me to actually work on. Uh, there are some hints of like the culture, like some references that people have asked me about. You know, the culture I would have worked on, the, the decadence, hmm. um, but I, I, I never got around to that. Hmm. Um, and uh, and then Wolfgang Mark who. I want to say, Eric, maybe you remember this more precisely, but I, I think he only did writing, but he did do a lot of writing for some of the cultures. Yeah, he did, uh, mainly did writing. Um, when I said that uh, Yuri and me were the like main drivers, it's more about this overarching story where we had this weird combination of Mr. Babylon as well as Celts and uh, modern technology and such. So um, as far as I remember it, uh, this was mostly our brainchild. Um, but then the, the singular reasons, uh, regions, the people, uh, that, uh, you just mentioned were pretty much autonomous. Mm-hmm. And I think Wolfgang supported us with writing all over the place for the people who weren't like such proficient, had not much proficiency in writing. Uh, I seem to remember that I wrote about 150,000 words myself for that game and I didn't put it in the project plan, which shows how much of a professional project manager I was back then. <laughs> and Wolfgang contributed uh, a lot also to that writing and uh, overhauling our our uh, gibberish. Right. How many people were there in total working on this? Because you mentioned the separate teams, like how many teams were there? 
a few full-time was four people. So it was Eric and me, Tosin Luchar, Marcus Prokopsky. Uh, Wolfgang helped out for probably at least a year. Uh, I don't know. Then we had uh, Reiner Eber did some programming. He was a programmer at Wolfbytes. Um, Jürgen Friedrichs uh, wrote the 3D engine uh, as a contractor. Um, and then we had uh, obviously Matthias Steinbachs doing the music. Uh, we'd worked with him before at Thalion. And then we had uh, a bunch of, you know, graphic artists at Blue Byte who uh, helped uh, with the graphics. So mm. can't remember all the names. I could, I would have to check the credits, but yeah. Uh, we Not actually sure got a... leaving anyone. Sorry, go ahead. No, just, I, um, I'm just looking at the questions we got. And one is actually, how was the art direction handled? I think you were in charge of how things looked. And then Blue Byte, it sounds like they just offered help with actually producing all the art. Is that sort of how it went? Yeah, pretty much. Did we have a art director or of sorts? I mean, probably not really. I we mean, had no director. No. You must keep in mind that we were um, a team of people who worked together for years. So um, everyone knew each other's uh, core areas very well. And there, there was not that much too direct because everyone could pretty much predict what the other one would be doing style-wise and, and otherwise anyway. So there were not many conflicts to predict in, in that because we were working together for so, so many years. Wow. I do remember, because this was a very specialized skill set back on 16-bit. Because, you know, uh, we could talk about this, but like Albion started off as an Amiga game. As a what? As an Amiga game. Oh, right. Yeah. But anyway, so it's a very socialized skill back then was creating palettes or, you know, because we weren't doing micropixel. Well, we were doing micropixel, sorry. That was the big innovation of DOS, right? But we weren't doing like, use any color you like where everything was palettized and coming up with good palettes is a, a very particular skill and Eric was very good at that. So hmm. uh, I think Eric, you did all the palettes. Yeah, I think so. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then Thorson did the, probably did the, the portraits and the, character graphics and then you both did the outdoor graphics and a lot of pilot sets we did yeah. together yeah. Mm -hmm. and i think you did most of the 3d graphics i don't know if torst did any yeah i did a little of those yeah. yeah and you also um experiments with 3d rendering right some of the objects uh <laughs> right. at the start you know, some of the 2d objects actually rendered in 3d and then you know use this giant sprites on a Mac, actually, you guys. I, I worked on a Mac before. It was cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We got a question. You sort of all already answered it because uh, Amber Star and Amber Moon were also this, this 2D, 3D hybrid games. We just got a question. Why did it seem like a good idea to go for this format? Well, what we always advocated for is that this combination of 2D and 3D makes use out of the properties of the format for certain areas of the game. So exploration of larger areas takes place in the bird's eye view because you have much better sense of orientation. Mm -hmm. It's also very nice to explore a large map in, in 2D because you can't get lost. And obviously the 3D capabilities back then would not allow you to um, depict a detailed world. So for the large distance exploration, you use 2D. And if you have a specific uh, quest location or city location, 
uh, where you sort of want to have the maximum in immersion, then you switch to 3D, mm -hmm. which I think even uh, today is a good reasoning given the technical limitations of uh, the games that we had back then. So it's just bringing on the excitement, really being there. Yeah, that, for that we, we used the 3D part, but if you would wanted to explore games world of the size of uh, the Ember series and uh, also Albion, <clears throat> that would have been just, maybe it would have been technically possible, but it would be just utterly boring and, and uh, just would not work in the 3D that we had back then. No. Even though the 3D mode still allows for the map, I, I can see how it also would be just confusing and you would get lost probably a lot. Yeah, and the question of, of distances, so to say, yeah, if you want to um, build a game where you have a whole world to explore instead of just a bunch of really cool dungeons, which is also a totally valid approach, but we wanted to depict the whole world. Mm -hmm. Navigating the whole world, I think, would have been not really fun with the 3D that we could do back then. Yeah, you, you would have to make compromises. But then you get consistency and we chose to be inconsistent in terms of like, you know, the, the way the world gets shown, but then have more precise emotional effects because, you know, you can feel like you're really there or, uh, you know, you have a better, you know, the feeling of traveling a landscape when you have the more zoomed out 2D view, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I guess the other reason is that like we, we've done it twice and we knew how to do it, right? So yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, the game was originally started as an Amiga game. And so we have a question like, why why then develop for DOS rather than Amiga? And what were the differences between working on the two platforms? I guess I could talk a little bit about that because I was impacted the most, right? So um, Hammerstar and Emma Moon were written in, for better or worse, right? a 68K assembly language, because that was the language I, I knew best. And, you know, that was the the, the hardcore of Alien you know, way of doing the things. We had our concerns about the Amiga market and the uh, legal copying that was happening, uh, as, as Eric sort of alluded to earlier. Uh, but, you know, we, we started on the on the Amiga also because, you know, uh, there wasn't like an easy option to immediately start working on a different platform. So we started working on that. And I, I, I think about six months in, um, Commodore went bankrupt. And so we were like, well, <laughs> you know, that happens. Yeah, I, I can say, uh, and I, I, I will regularly tell the story to younger people I work with. I go like, once you've had your actual platform go bankrupt under you, nothing can surprise you anymore, right? So things like <laughs> your the middleware using explodes or gets bought or whatever, you know, your publisher, you know, goes away. You know, that's all like you know, not boring, but mm -hmm. you know, you can roll with it, right? And so we we rolled with it, and uh, that meant for me to like, yeah, you know, uh, start working on DOS. Uh, you know, Bluebind had had experience with developing games for DOS. Um, and uh, and that meant like x86 Intel assembly language, like you, uh, it's just not as elegant as 68K assembly language. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, not going to learn that. And I just went straight to C. I had a, a very small book that sort of explained C to me, like all the commands. And I just started figuring it out, um, which, you know, works out in some ways and in other ways, like after shipping it, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have done this or, you know, this other thing was really bad or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, uh, basically you restarted implementing everything in, in C. And because of the whole tool set was still running on, you know, Atari C you know, uh, emulators, uh, we could continue to develop things, right? Um, you know, on the content side. Uh, so it mostly slowed me down and is probably one of the reasons why 
you know, I never got around to editing my own sort of, uh, you know, cultures and content, but right. yeah, that's, that's sort of how it happened. Uh, and I, I vividly remember, uh, this was in a day where, uh, people would just call the office and demand to speak directly to developers. Uh, and there was an, a, a, an Amiga fan who called me and argued with me. What? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, no, but you could still ship it on Amiga. I'm like, no. <laughs> like we're not going to do that so uh yeah uh i made someone sad well you know not well i may sad by just you know confirming our decision i think a lot of people were sad to be honest that the whole omega thing blew up yeah of course but it was you know the pcs were taking over right you know, like yeah. dos was taking over so you know and then windows happened and you know blah. Mm -hmm. but um but yeah you know that's sort of um that's the amiga history um Actually, and there's even, so in case it wasn't clear, uh, there are a lot of people out there who know a lot more about Albion than what Eric and I remember. Um, and one of the things, so, so someone mentioned like, oh yeah, and, and you know, there's this demo of the Amiga version of Albion. I'm like, what do you mean? And they go like, yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, look at this thing. You know, they, they, they showed me, you know, where you could download it and you could run it. And I think it's on YouTube or something. And it was mm -hmm. like, you know, yeah, it's the early version of uh, Albion. Yeah. On, on Amiga, and I was like, where did people get this? And then they're like, it's from this page on bluebuy.com. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and then, you know, it came with text that Eric had written, right? And then, so it was like, you know, we've both completely forgotten that we, at some point, just like, oh, yes, let's, let's put this on, a, on the web. That's right. I think you sent me that. And I was like, we did that? Seriously? <laughs> and you must have written it because it's like, you know, it's okay German and not terrible German. So I didn't write it, right? Yeah, I must have done that. Yeah, so, you know, completely forgot. Do you still have the source code? Uh, I have bits of the source code here and there. Does anyone have the source code? Uh, so in theory, so these days, what is common, I, I don't know if every company calls that, but like what's common is that you, when you finish the game, you make something called the closing kit, which is like all the, all the resources, all the sources, right? And you put it in a safe place and store it so that if you need it in the future, you still have it. Mm -hmm. And we did not do that. So uh, I had the PC that I developed Albion on. I got a new PC and I put the old PC on a shelf. And then later it moved to the basement. And then I quit Bluebyte. And then Bluebyte was bought by Ubisoft. And people from Ubisoft went through that basement and took everything of value in, you know, because it was theirs, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe that original PC and also the original Amiga that Amber was developed on, maybe those are in some archive in Paris along with Ubisoft. So the fun fact is I actually worked for Ubisoft for four years quite recently. And I tried to you know, find out who could have this. Yeah. And I was just completely unable to find, you know, like I still have like, I talked to someone at Blue Byte who was like, oh, I'm, there's a guy who was there at the time. He might know, but he's currently sick for a couple of months. And then, and then I quit Ubisoft and now I need to contact him again. And this and that, you know, and even then it's like, you know, maybe they can tell us that like, yes, this, uh, this machine exists, right, or not? And then what, what would you do with it, right? Convincing a giant company with a lot of lawyers to do a thing that they don't get a lot out of, mm, right, is difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm i not a lawyer. I think some of the material that I still have, like if I put it, you know, like a document or something, right, or even like part of the source code, maybe if I put it on GitHub and go like, look, this is for historical interest only, um, you cannot use this to build a game. Not as in you shouldn't. Like you, you literally cannot. Right? It's there's stuff missing, and and it would actually be pretty hard to find like the original compiler from back then. This and that. Hmm. So there's no like danger to the 
millions of euros that Ubisoft makes through GOG.com still selling Albion, mm-hmm. right? Then maybe I could put some stuff online. But, you know, uh, there's also like, um, there, there are various like uh, museums and universities that have archive departments uh, for this kind of stuff. It's, it's actually generally a complicated situation for a lot of game developers, right? And especially with game developers now reaching the age where they're you know, dying of old age, right? And then mm. sometimes it's like, well, do they have old stuff, right? Did they archive it or is, is the copyright situation clear in cases where that matters, right? So I, I know people who've done a great job of like keeping everything and organizing it and donating it all to university, you know, for uh, future people who are interested, but digital archaeologists. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So uh, it's it's not an easy question of like, sure, here's the source code. No. Throw it on GitHub, you know, but um, yeah, you know, I, I'd like to, you know, I, I'm, I'm more nostalgic than Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd like to uh, throw some of that stuff yeah. you know, online if I can, but you know. I'm sure there's a huge fan community who's dying for this sort of stuff, so. Well, the only way to be safe of, uh, with the law- lawyers of Ubi, Yuri, is just like, you set up the server where every week or so you have to manually log in to keep it from posting it on Reddit or whatever. And <laughs> then man switch. Exactly, and as soon as you <laughs> kick the bucket, there it is. Sure. <laughs> well, no, but that incentivizes all the Albin fans to kill me. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. This is right. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't be more valuable, Dad. That's the, the first rule of life. Yeah. So, Eric, I imagine the whole game was developed in German, right? Yes, yes, it was. Um, and come to speak of it, I have no idea who did the English translation. Yeah, that's my question. <laughs> I think that has been done Bluebyte internally. Yeah. No, no, I, uh, I, I know who did this. Um, uh, because there was a whole uh, adventure for me attached to it. So I, I don't I don't remember the name of the translator, but um, it was given to a translator uh, and they were like, you know, we were like, hey, here's 150 fast words code translated. And um, then it, that had to be integrated into the game, right? And there's always some technical work involved, which is wow, I, I got involved. And for reasons which to this day, I don't remember and it doesn't make sense to me, but Bluebyte was like, why did you go do that in our US office? <laughs> I know, like, you know, like I was like, what, 25 or something. I'm like, yeah, you want me to spend two weeks in, in the US? Sure. Yeah. Um, I completely forgot that. No, well, I vividly remember it because, you know, like I spent two weeks in a suburb of Chicago, Schaumburg, Illinois, which, you know, was That's a, awesome. a, an adventure if you've never been to the US. Yeah. But I think everyone in the US will go like, wait, Schaumburg? Because, <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you know, there's basically a bunch of restaurants and stores and then everybody just, you know, lives there, right? It's it's not really where you go. If, you, if you're in the, the neighborhood of Chicago, just go to Chicago, right? Mm. Which is especially bizarre because in German that translates to something like foam creek or so. Or foam castle. Or foam castle, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. So uh, they were like, go, go to the US. I'm like, okay. Uh, and I took my, my, my desktop PC, which was, you know, like in a really, you know, prudent mid nineties, like reasonably serious metal casing. A tower. No, not a tower. Actually. It was oh. like, I wanted to flat the wider models. Yeah. Desktop. Yes, exactly. So I put that in a box where they exactly filled that box and then went on a plane. And so this is very much a pre 2001 story <laughs> <laughs> because I went through I must have had it as hand luggage somehow because I went through um, security and they were like, 
what is that big box you're carrying? I'm like, oh, that's my PC. Can you open it? And I open it. And they look down and all they see is a metal plate, right? Because they only see the top of that. Yeah. And they go like, okay, fine. You know, <laughs> they just let me through with like a box of electronics. Box this is with. fine. <laughs> yeah. And also I was fine with like, you know, oh, this is the only copy of the, well, I'm sure we had backup somewhere, but you know, like the only copy of the game and it's on a hard drive and I'm taking this through security, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I basically uh, took my PC over there. Uh, we, we had to find like a, a step transformer to go from 110 to 220. I was going to ask that. Does the power supply even work? Uh, if you get like the right little box, it, it works. Uh, and then what I did was just go through the translation uh, and, you know, compare it. And uh, and occasionally I would email the translator, or but very little actually. Uh, and, and I just went through and fixed things. Hmm. And I, I had a, a, a good friend, or, you know, or I still have a good friend, but... Um, who was from the U.S. or is from the U.S. and he's a, he's a professional writer. And I would go like, hey, these things, does that seem off to you? And he's like, yeah, no, that's terrible. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to fix it. So um, there, there was a bunch of stylistic things that I fixed. Uh, and I, I don't want to be too harsh on the translator because they usually get paid like peanuts and mm-hmm. uh, they usually don't have a lot of context for what, what, you know, you give them a list of like names of spells and then they have to figure out what that even means, right? So these were German native speakers in America or... I don't even know where that translator was, uh, huh. but obviously, you know, they, they spoke German yeah. enough to translate it to English. Yeah. And then I sort of did an editing pass on it. All right. So what did the U.S. office even contribute? Yeah, exactly. Well, why have you been there? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> but it's one of those things where I, I've had, I, I had a, I once had an, an amazing all expense paid trip to Tokyo at some other company. Where it like I had no business of being there and I contributed nothing, but I was like, <laughs> well, I'm not going to say no to a trip. To, you know, so I, I don't know what, what, what they were thinking, what I was thinking. I just know that I, I sat in an office in Schaumburg, Illinois, working on that translation and I could have just done it from Germany. Awesome. Yeah, you know, like had some good food. Uh, there are some sandwiches you can get near Chicago. They're amazing. I still dream of those sandwiches. Went to Starbucks for the first time in my life. Nice. Yeah, you know, at the time there was a revelation, right? Yeah, that's cool. Like in the movies. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Reminds me of the, the time where I went on legitimate business reasons with my CEO on a paid business trip to Las Vegas to the biggest porn convention in the US. And it wasn't even an excuse, but I won't go to, into the details, but that, <laughs> that just triggered so many memories. Yes. Yeah. There, there's fun, fun business trips you can have in the games industry. <laughs> And the, the French translation was done by, ironically, Ubisoft. You know, they were the publisher. Oh, foreshadowing. Yes, exactly. Uh, they did the illustration that most people know of Albion, which was also used for the American and the Korean uh, packaging, right? Which has a, the amazing drawing with the Iskai in the front and the crashed, you know, the German package just had the logo on a, on a dark green background and that was it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they did that that uh, illustration and they sent someone over to do the French version. And so, you know, I got to go to the US, he got to go to Germany, uh, the Ruhrgebiet, you know, like the best part of Germany. Um, and uh, he, he, I would explain to him like, oh, well, here's all the particularities and, and here are some things and, you know, here are some cool features I, I put in to, so you can do, you know, gender appropriate uh, possessive pronouns and this and that. And he sort of listened to me and then he sort of looks at me and I go like, I don't think he got it. Let me explain it. And I explained it again. And he, he sort of nods. I go like, okay. And then he just sort of sat there and went through the whole translation. Uh, and then later I actually moved to France and 
freshened up my French because I was pretty bad in high school. And then I realized that, you know, possessive pronouns work differently in French. And, you know, that whole system I built only works in, it really only works in English. Yeah, this is often the case with these custom translating tools. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I learned that the hard way. And, and uh, much later in my career, I actually got to build a system that works in all languages. So it was very gratifying. Yes. Nice. But uh, yeah. I have actually a quick question about the translation because the version I played was a Czech translation and I'm not sure it was anyhow official, but it was like one of the magazines and I was reading and the, like the editor team there decided like, okay, this is one of the, it was one of their preferred games and it was like one of the games that offered actually with the, with the magazine at some point and they decided to translate it whole, but then they were just kind of saying like, oh, well, this was a great idea. It's like one megabyte of pure text. Were you at all, like, included in this thing? Do you, do you remember which year it was? I could find it, but... It doesn't ring a bell to me. And the only, like, even the Korean version, I have nothing to do with. Uh, I just know it exists and I have the box somewhere. Uh, do, you, do you remember, Eric? Mm, not really. I just, this, this to be back, uh, but the Czech translation kicked me down memory lane again. Uh, you, you remember the story of CD Projekt Red and the translation of um, of an Incubation. I, I do not. <laughs> I didn't know CD Projekt Red existed when we did Incubation. <laughs> yeah, they did back then. They were a Polish distributor. They didn't do their own games yet. And I think it was even Martin, the, 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 the still CEO of CD Projekt Red, um, who came to, to Gütersloh. And Incubation had no Unicode or anything. It was still 8-bit ASCII um, hard-coded text or, uh, in this game, which made it very difficult to translate into other languages with a lot of uh, special characters like Polish. And um, these guys approached us and discussed with the CEO and like, hey, we would like to have a Polish translation of this awesome game and we were like, ah, that's a lot of work because we would have to go back into the source code and shoehorn Unicode in and it's, uh, it's really complicated. We cannot just display the Polish characters, uh, would be a lot of programming involved and he interrupted us and we were like, no, 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 we are done. We have the Polish translation. What? Uh, <laughs> yes. And we were like, well, you don't even have the source code. Yeah, we, we are done. We did the Polish translation. So wow. he sort of, <laughs> he sort of uh, like, well, either we distribute this officially or unofficially. So how do you want it? <laughs> <laughs> I think this happened a lot, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. I, I have similar sort of stories from other games. That people can be very inventive. Yeah, I yeah. there are definitely multiple games, like basically fan translations, just people hacking the source of uh, actually not the source code but like the binaries yeah well for us it was amazing because it was actually not a trivial thing to do at all and uh, <laughs> we didn't even know how they did it and like okay here's <laughs> uh, a contract did you get to find anything joseph yeah the the czech translation was done in 99 oh yeah i was already um i left blue byte in 97 mm -hmm. so but you know, yeah, it's it's definitely possible, uh, like to just take the binaries and translate that. <laughs> yeah, I, the, the thing to remember about the text is like, yes, it was one hundred fifty thousand line uh, or characters of text, but somehow 
And Eric, I don't know if it was more your, you or me, but I, you know, we, you know, we, we didn't like it when you talk to someone again, when you talk to someone and they tell you something, then you talk to them a second time and they tell you the exact same thing. That's not realistic. Mm-hmm. No. So like, I'm sure like half the text in the game is like, well, as I just told you, <laughs> and then it just repeats all the time, you know, and then like a million variations on that, right? Yeah. Because, you know, we would just go like, has this person said this before? Okay, then play this other text, right? We also had this multi-layered uh, knowledge system, if I remember correctly, right? Where a lot of people knew about certain common uh, knowledge about their city or area and certain common knowledge about the whole world, which you would expect them to know. And that is a system that I, a couple of years later, saw in Morrowind, actually. Yes. And another thing that I um, discovered in Morrowind was quite funny. It was a couple of years after Albion... Um, and I started playing Morrowind and the game talked to me a lot in the beginning. And I was like, aha, can I start the game and stop talking to me and I don't want to know all this. And I was like, shit, I did the very same thing in Albion. <laughs> I did the very same thing. Oh my God, what did I do? <laughs> yep. There was actually, there was some feedback we got on Albion uh a bit too late but uh, this is from uh, a guy who works at a guy called uh, thomas friedman he was like well it takes about an hour or two to get to mm-hmm. you know the fantasy part right yeah and and then the game sort of changes and maybe that's so long and that's and uh it's fair feedback i think it it had to be for the story we were telling right um yeah uh, but uh yeah and, and it's actually yeah. something that is to this day a hard thing in video games or you know you like you start with some kind of tutorial, some kind of setup for the story. Yeah. And, but you want to, you know, give people freedom as soon as you can. And, you know, that, that usually that first part of the game gets redone like yeah. Yeah. a zillion times. Yeah. Just said. Yeah. Yeah. It's not even that long in Albion, really. I, I remember it uh, as, as too long. And I think I, uh, mm. Yuri, correct me again if I'm wrong, but I think I did the intro part on board of the spaceship. And uh, in hindsight, I, I think I, delivered way too much uh, with the term exposition. Mm. But I only realized that after encountering the same thing in Morrowind. So it, was, uh, <laughs> it amused me and uh, scared me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually friends with someone who worked on, who worked. he didn't work on Morrowind, but he worked on Fallout 4 and Skyrim, I think. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I ever told him this. And I'm sure he would laugh about it, but I, I played Fallout 4 up until the point that I got out of the bunker and then I was... I got bored and stopped. Mm. And it just feels like I literally just did that, that little intro sequence where you're constrained. And then as soon as you have all the, you know, all the freedom of the whole open world, I was like, eh. It can be overwhelming. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was it. And, you know, yeah. I think Albion handles that pretty nicely, actually. It, it feels like it opens up, but it's like in stages. Because even the first fantasy area is not like, okay, here's the whole world. You uh, just explore everything now. It's still contained. Yeah, I think that that was, um, I, I want to say that was intentional. Yeah, we got a question about that, actually. Yeah, so uh, this is actually from one of the people who, from my understanding, was in the Discord of the people who are the big fans. Yeah. So basically the, the scale of the world feels like the world could be much bigger because so in the world there are like a few islands, a few settlements. So in terms of like people who live in the world, it's pretty small, but was the idea that beyond this world that we visit in the world, it's the, the world itself is like way bigger with even more cultures. And So is the question, 
is is it implied that the the world's actually larger? You're not visiting literally all the towns there are on the planet? Yes. Or are you? It's like what you do in the game, is that the whole planet? Well, the, yeah, the, the, which is it? I think Yuri helped me out. I think we had to cut out one of the cultures. But at least one, yeah, the decadence. Yeah. Is that the hedonists? Maybe. Maybe yeah. hedonist decadence. Yeah, that's pretty close. Yeah. I think, uh, so yeah, someone found references to that. Yeah, where other people mentioned like, oh, there's these. Mm-hmm. I think vaguely something comes out of the fog of history. I think the hedonists, wasn't that the uh, scenario that Wolfgang was uh, scheduled to do and we ran out of time? I think he was advocating for writing that. I I was... Uh, supposed to work on. Yeah. Um, I, and I literally, like, apart from like a tiny bit of flavor text that I wrote, I don't remember how, what role they played, if any, in the, the larger story. From how I remember it, we didn't have to cut dramatically. So it wasn't like uh, we set out to this lofty goal and we could only ship half the game. We did some cuts, but uh, nothing out of the ordinary for, for every development cycle. Hmm. I think the question is not just like about cutting, but maybe like, is there, for it was the idea that on Miney, for example, on the main, main, like the biggest island, there are actually like more cities, just like you don't get to visit them, but like they are there. Or is this like the amount of people that are basically living in this world? Because for example, the Iskai, they seem to have like very profound and like long culture, but they live in one big city and one village, right? So yes, from the from the world building, as far as I remember, um, there were supposed to be other cities, so it should have been a, of course, a larger culture. But we tried to not name and be too precise about that because otherwise we would have come up with an idea: why can't you go there? Mm-hmm. I see. So the intention was yes, that the world was uh, larger, but um, we sort of uh, tiptoed around that, um, but in, in our mind and from the world, yes, yes, it was, but it wasn't uh, explicitly referenced anywhere for the reason I just mentioned. Uh, yeah, we had another question about this development. Is uh, it was about the Iskai language? So, uh, like, how did the how was the language developed, and how much of it actually exists? One of our um, listeners he was kind of disappointed that there was not a like a dictionary or like a grammar book that would be like dumped on him when uh, uh, Reiner tells Tom that he'll teach him some of the language. You can answer him dude we were like busting our asses for 12 hours a day and every weekend to begin with we didn't have time to go talking ah, come on. Uh, on this in two years. Create a language come this on. Sure. <laughs> but I, I think that was all Eric right? Like you also did all the the research into uh, yeah. Celtic languages. Yeah, that that as well. And a lot of reference books for the Celtic languages. I uh, designed the the Iskai race. It was very scary process because I drew them on paper, which um, is very stressful for me because I'm not very good. But I wanted to do a good job, so it was all very uh, exciting for me. I can imagine that. I can add a tiny anecdote about the Celtic part, which is that um, I think Eric, you had a friend who, who knew a little bit, and then you had that book. I later uh, moved to Vienna and met my wife there, and she talked to a good friend of hers, and she was like, "I met this guy. He's called Yuri," and he was like, "Yuri, the guy who made Albion." And I'm like, and and she was like, "Wait, 
like how how would you know it? you know and so it turned out that he was a, a big fan of albion uh but also he was a uh, certified uh how do you pronounce it in english a celtologist oh wow. he knew about celtic languages to the point that he has co-written the dictionary for uh cornish which is a celtic language so he really knew his stuff uh and he he was very uh precise about it and so later i got to meet him and you know he became a friend and a very nice guy and you know and, and he was a fan and then i sort of asked him like so how bad you know how 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 bad did we do mm -hmm. uh you know and he sort of so politely you know like mm, well it's, oh. it's fine <laughs> <laughs> for a video game you know yeah <laughs> lay down before you hurt yourself <laughs> yeah we have a whole bunch of questions that are that go more into the content of like the quests and the, the so maybe we can we can just go through those, Joseph. Yeah, I have one. And so, what's about the intro sequence? Like, how did that came to be, and how is it linked to the game itself? That's for Eric. Yeah, trying to rummage through my memory here. It's uh, <laughs> we hired this uh, guy, Tobias Richter, a very nice guy, um, one of the pioneers of uh, CGI rendered uh, movies in in Germany, and we were like, okay, we didn't want to do like the like with the rest of the game, we didn't want to stick to the usual cliches. And of course, we also had budget restrictions, so we couldn't put half of a CD-ROM full of movie sequences. So we thought like, okay, this whole conflict between technology, nature, that fantasy, or what uh, people thought to be fantasy is partly reality on this planet. They exist magic and technology at the same time. How can we all put all of this into some sort of intro sequence? And um, we, I, I'm not sure if I brainstormed that with Tobias together and how the exact thing came to be or if the storyboard then ultimately came from Tobias. Uh, we come up with this dream sequence, which was uh, deliberately ex uh, abstract and um, just symbolized that hey, this rational main character uh, gets the first uh, glimpse of that there will be some some things happening in this in his future that uh, will scatter his rational worldview. Yeah? So how about he gets this vague dream of uh, abstract images that maybe later somehow makes sense. That's how I remember it. It's, it's really how we designed if you had a storyboard with everything and whatnot i don't i don't know anymore but i think these were roughly our uh, motivations there mm. yeah what i remember is <laughs> i had a an idea for something that more involved the you know the, the concrete characters and the world the problem was uh, you know which eric convinced me of is that we did not have the the bandwidth to to work that out with an external contractor. Like we couldn't do it internally and then externally, you can't just, it, it wouldn't have been the thing where you sort of go tell someone like, go make this, right? And then they come back and then you can use it mm -hmm. uh, because it would have been, you know, a lot more concrete with like, you know, indi indication of like, oh, there's an guy and there's this character and was actually turned out to be this character, blah, blah, blah you know? Uh, and it, it simply, you know, because this was like in the last, I want to say six months of the development and, we were working very hard at that time. Um, you know, we, we wouldn't have been able to have that, you know, work out. And it was better to give a more uh, sort of metaphysical, you know, metaphorical idea and, and have them do that 
And, you know, uh, it was, uh, you know, cutting edge for the time. And that's sort of the, the part I remember. Is it something you wanted in the game yourselves or was it something that Blue Byte really wanted? Because I remember that that having these FMV CGI things where there was a, a large hype around it. Like, Yeah, definitely. Having these was like a must-have. Yeah. I, I don't remember us going like, oh, no, you know, the evil, you know, upper management of Blue White, you know, who was like one guy, right? Uh, <laughs> like, he was forcing us to do this. Uh, I don't think it was that. No. No, I think it was, uh, we would have liked to have an intro sequence, but as, as uh, Yuri said, we didn't have much of bandwidth to take care for it ourselves. And, uh, uh, of course, we were fine if our boss wants to spend money on it and yeah yeah super and you just mean like mental bandwidth like time you look yeah yeah yeah. exactly it's not a technical thing it's just yeah you're doing handling so many things that you know wrapping up the game itself is hard enough precisely yeah yeah i have like in the in the so was there part of the like uh i would say like special effects done also by other people because one thing that always stuck with me was that in an intro sequence the well the sort of the bubbles in which the different objects flow, they look surprisingly much like the fireballs later in the game. So I was wondering if there was some sort of like retaken or just pure coincidence. Uh, it's possible that for the effect graphics, we use the 3D rendering package because we we did use that here and there, right? But as far as I remember, that was entirely separate. So that must have been sort of accidental. Yeah, I agree. I don't remember that we got any vfx separate tracks or whatever from tobias so might have been concerned coincidental yeah Mm. there's some more questions like about the actual content of the game i don't know if these are spoilers if people have not played this game until the end so maybe well it's good that we've held out the spoilers until now but (laughs) these are like some pretty specific questions about quests and stuff so so i'm out yeah same (laughs) uh and actually i didn't work on those and i uh, I don't think I fully played through the entire game ever, so wow. I, I know even less. Oh crap! Yeah, you, you have a good excuse because you didn't do any scenarios yet. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> okay, so maybe maybe I can add one <laughs> question, like a bit, bit more. Like you mentioned that the game was originally called DDT, uh, and then a word that uh, sorry, but <laughs> I was unable to comprehend. But you, it this term eventually ended up as a well, let's say the name of the main villain of the of the game, right? The uh, the company. I think that was like a little joke. So DDT was you know, the third part, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the, that was like our little weird pun to use that as the name of the evil corporation. I even forgot that part. Yeah. No, no, they send, uh, yeah, it's, uh, so, and, and I, well, what I remember, and you, and you can find this in the game pretty, you know, like in the first five minutes and so, you, if you talk to someone about DDT, they will go like, yeah, it means something like, uh, Daihatsu something. It's like Daihatsu Daimler Thompson is like three big corporations. Exactly. Yes. And it was obviously, <laughs> you know, real companies, but we slightly changed the name so they wouldn't sue us, which I felt was, yeah. you know, overly uh, cautious maybe. <laughs> but, you know, this was very much like, you know, c- you know, cyberpunk big corporation, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I'm not saying that's wrong, but you know, that, that's sort of like where I came from. Also, uh, on a personal note, uh, I think I was the one who suggested the name Toronto. Yeah, for the ship. For the ship. And I live in uh, Toronto, which I now know how to pronounce without the second T. And, you know, that's sort of a weird, like, personal accident, you know? Yeah. Foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I, I think it was like, 
Uh, this sounds cool. Let's use that name. I'm sure you know, the Canadians will send a giant spaceship into space. Why not? You're, you're right. I never made that connection. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. So anyway, the question was, so I don't know if you guys know it. If you don't, that's just fine. I mean, I don't know it. The question is, there's a, a prison quest in the uh, Umajo Desert. And the question is, is that part of a larger plot? I will draw a total blank, I must admit. This loud... How how long is that ago? Like 25 years? We are talking about a quarter of a century, guys. Give yeah. It, cut us some slack. Of course, of course. Yeah, but, uh, you know, people asked us these questions. I, I I feel I have to put them forward, but... No, no, that makes, it makes sense, right? And uh, and sometimes you do remember things, right? But uh, in this case, um, I don't. I think the that was a culture that uh, Wolfgang was sort of heavily involved in, although I, I then still don't remember much about you know many details about that mm. so no. all i remember is that uh, the the dunes that i was pixeling for this desert were driving me insane until i got them right all right but that's not really answering the question that's still interesting <laughs> yeah there was one more it was also about like the kind of the quests but basically at the very end there is a whole dungeon that is very much optional and at the very bottom of it, you can get something called Stone of Visions, which is sort of like Philosopher's Stone, I suppose, this kind of stuff. And it's it's implied that it's very important, but in the end, and, and there are like custom animations made for it and a tile set and everything, and you can like insert it in these jewel makers headquarters. But in the end, it's like, well, doesn't do anything. So that was my question. Like, was there any like anything behind this or was there supposed to be a bit more of the story it was the 90s man it was all a blur <laughs> <laughs> i uh i don't remember no no i don't remember at all i'm sorry it's fine. yeah me either it might have uh, like logic suggests that it might have uh, had to do something with the one culture we needed to cut out mm. but there are bits and pieces in there that were planned to, to connect or reference uh, that cut out culture uh but this, other than that, I also don't specifically remember that. Um, of course, would have been better if I would have played the whole game again. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's... before the podcast. But since Yuri and me are still part of the industry, this is the amount of time that we simply don't have. It is a big game. I mean, I really, I had, I was new to this game, and I just went in fresh at the start of December. I thought, well, December, you know, it's the holidays, it's I have time. And I only managed to get like the first three islands done. And I ended up in a really big city. And then the month was over. And I really tried to get to the end of this game. But it's a it's a big game is is what it is. Yeah. And that was very much intentional. I, I remember Eric, you know, when he was sort of not so much pitching as in like please let us make us but like saying like why why we're doing this the way we're doing it right like mm-hmm. going like no we you know we want to make this a big game that you can play for a long time um uh, i i do think you know like as you as we sort of alluded to uh we crunched an enormous amount right mm-hmm. uh, actually when it was so when i worked at ubisoft and, and i when i whatever i would talk about albion i would have to go through ubisoft's communications teams and they didn't like me talking about the crunch we did on Albion. I'm like, this is before it became part of Ubisoft, you know, like, yeah. it's 25 years ago. But now I no longer work at Ubisoft. And I can say, so we crunched a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I think we we, we all came out like 
hey, you know, let's not, not that it was like a bad time, uh, for me at least because I was single, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, like, let's make sure that the next time we do this, that it's more planned. Hmm. And I think if maybe we'd cut a chunk of the game, then we could have polished what was there more. Maybe you know, yeah. like it's, it's it's not the way we would do games today. I think, but it is something that I feel like I'm I'm enormously proud of, and it is uh, the the game in my entire career where I had the most creative input. Hmm. And so in that sense, it was enormously satisfying. Uh, it, it was an amazing team, right? Uh, I, I'm not in touch with everyone on the team anymore, but. Uh, you know, that I am still friends with, with all of them, right? Actually, you know, friends I haven't spoken to in 10 years, but you know, it, it was a fun experience to work on, you know, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't do it the same way again. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with, with you either. And, uh, it was ultimately the game that brought me to really learn project management, what it is all about and, and so forth. I'm, I'm a old school developer. Yeah. We all back then thought like, yeah, project management, uh, boring shit yeah just hack it yeah just like we we do shit like we always do and but although as you read i'm still super proud of albion and was one of the creatively most satisfying games in my career but at the end i really said like okay i can't and i won't do this anymore in this way i need uh, and i was back then already for many years ultimately responsible for the schedule Mm -hmm. um while being creatively involved at the same time, which is ATSC to begin with. But there in this game, Albin, I really were like, okay, you got to get your shit together. You have to know, you have to learn how to control these projects in such a way that uh, we don't kill ourselves for it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's when I set out to, to learn this shit. And to a certain degree I did, and to a certain degree more or less... Uh, successful i uh, managed to avoid uh, death marches like that uh, yeah i think this is a common thing we've heard before is i think it also comes with the age maybe like being in in your 20s you don't mind as much to just go for it and and work long hours and and maybe later it just yeah it's more it takes more of a toll on you maybe later and I don't know. This is a really common thing anyway. Yeah, well, the, the, the one thing I'll say is that this was entirely self-inflicted and we were not being exploited by an evil company, right? Mm, yeah, and and yeah. I think that makes a, a big difference, right? So, you know, we are supporting ourselves to blame for this. True. Yeah. Yeah, that does make a big difference. I have one more question on my list, which is a bit of a silly question and it's a technical thing. And, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to ask it. I have no idea. Anyway, apparently, I know this guy. a thing that people do is you run into walls and you grab objects <laughs> that are at the other side of the wall. So, was this intentional? <laughs> no. And I, I didn't even know this was a thing until last year when someone told me, like, oh, yeah, you know, like, you can you can just sort of walk up and then grab real quick and run away and the merchant won't tell. But, you know, like I was like, I've never heard of this, right? <laughs> but um, I also, I mean... I think the German version was released in like January 96. The uh, English version was mid 96. And I left Blue Byte at like September 97. So there was a, a, a reasonable amount of time for us to get feedback from players, right? Uh, through customer support, mm-hmm. which we did get on, on Amber Moon, for instance. And, and I don't recall that ever being, having been mentioned. So 
Yeah, no, apparently there's a, I, I hear there's a bug. <laughs> I don't think people mind, to be honest. No, I guess they don't because, you know, you can just steal stuff. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Um, so to, to talk about sort of the you know, overall summary of Albion and, and in a way, Amaru, what is gratifying is that you know, people who remember playing the game remember so fondly and, you know, and some people are still really into the game and know a lot more about it than we do, right? Or remember more. And that is just, you know, usually satisfying it does lead to interesting situation, particularly for me. So uh, there's a um, a guy in Germany. So I don't actually know his real name. Uh, his, his sort of online handle is uh, Piedekwa. Mm-hmm. And he has a Discord server all about Amber Moon. Mm-hmm. And he has reverse engineered Amber Moon and has rewritten it in C Sharp. And he has, he's now, he has patched the original Amiga version to include new features and content. So he's doing nice. really crazy stuff. And he will occasionally just go like, yeah, I found a bug in your code, you know, or, <laughs> or you will go like, how does this work? And I go like, oh, it worked like this. And you're like, no, no, I'm no. looking at the source code, you know, and, and, you know, and, and I've actually, uh, tried to help him a little bit, but, you know, using, there's a, a tool that was developed by the NSA All right. uh, for reverse engineering that got leaked and people use that, you know, you can actually t- throw an Amiga executable at it and it'll just de- disassemble it. Wow. And so, you know, we've been spelunking in my old source code and, you know, there's people like, looking at that stuff and finding bugs and then occasionally go like oh i finally figured out how the ui works it's very very cool you know and that's it's 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 super gratifying that people still you know love these games Mm. i think it's also because they they will have played it as kids right sure uh and i think you know but you know if you compare that to nowadays you know if you release a big triple a game you don't necessarily want to meet the people who really love that and you, you don't want their feedback because, you know, they might like threaten you on the internet. <laughs> and, you know, so the, the whole like toxic gamer thing is yeah just just not a thing for those old games, right? Because like, you know, like if you really hated that game and the people who worked on it, like, are you going to carry that grudge 25 years? You know, unlikely. No. But if you grew up with it and you have fond memories, you know, then that nostalgia will carry over and, and then you. you yeah. Know, yeah. So that's uh, th- that I think is, you know, just an amazing Thing about uh, those games. Imagine though you do run into uh, some early toxic gamer that holds a grudge for 25 years. You <laughs> don't want to be there. Nah, I don't think this is common. I, you know, we've been doing this show now for a couple of years and I've, I've talked to a lot of people who are into this old games and they're always super nice. And honestly, you know, the whole toxic gamer thing, I don't know, it doesn't seem as... It, it doesn't even seem to really exist for this retro gaming community, to be honest. So, yeah, but, yeah I'd be very surprised. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's true. Also, I just moved to another continent just, to, <laughs> just in case. Yeah. What are you guys doing now and, and have done since? So I think you kept working for Bluebyte for a while, didn't you, Eric? Yes, yes, I did. To the degree that I ultimately became head of development there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, most well-known title or series that I was then uh, responsible for is Settler 3 and uh, Settlers 4. Nice. And after that, Bluebyte got sold to Ubisoft, which then uh, turned into a recurring theme, uh, sort of, in, in my career. First, I went to Jowood, being head of development there, being responsible for a lot of chipped games. That, that didn't get sold to Ubisoft. It uh, sort of ran out of money, um, but morphed into THQ Nordic, uh, which sort of uh, was very successful later. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but then I went to Sunflowers, uh, where I was responsible for the um, 1701 part of uh, Anno, mm-hmm. or Anno Domini, I think AD it's called in the English-speaking territories, uh, until the company got, ta-da, sold to Ubisoft. Ah. And uh, <laughs> I was a freelancer for a while and, and, and whatnot, and had a lot of adventures all, all around the world. And uh, was participating in a, as a consultant in some some titles. Mm-hmm. For example, I worked with the Xbox uh, Connect when it wasn't Xbox Connect yet, but uh, a prototype uh, of some Israeli company. Mm. Um, and uh, worked with uh, the guys uh, like a, a studio who wanted to make a sports game with that hardware, also in Israel and uh, talk about uh, your platform going bust because uh, I worked with the guys for, I don't know, a year or so on and off. Mm-hmm. And then Microsoft bought the whole thing and grabbed everyone and everything and locked it into some basement in, in Redmond, I don't know. And uh, my my developers were like, yeah, our hardware just disappeared. Uh, wow. We are not sure we can continue this. So No. Yeah. That Damn. Just a just a little side episode. Yeah. And well, nowadays I'm I'm living in Malta. Nice. After some other many adventures. Um currently I'm working as development manager in Foy Games, which are most famous for the Metro series of post apocalyptic shooters. Wow, yeah. And that's what you're still doing now. Yes, although I'm not uh, working on the Metro series itself, but uh, yeah, sort of do my own thing again. Also uh, find myself back in the role between uh, being responsible for everything, but also being involved creatively, which I should know better, but I just can't (laughs) keep my finger (laughs) off it. But now you're experienced, thanks to Albion. Now you know what you're doing, right? Uh, I like to think so, <laughs> but often I don't feel like it. No. Well. It will never be that, hey, I got it figured out. No. Well, but maybe maybe that would be boring. I don't know. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And and Yuri also uh, kept working in the in the game industry for Ubisoft. Is is it did you go to Ubisoft right after Blue Byte? No, no, no. We're like no. um 20 years oh wow uh, so so who sold out to the big guys ultimately really <laughs> huh? it gets worse uh, it's, uh, they're gonna laugh i made a 3d character animation library at blue white which was used in two games including uh incubation uh battle owl game because it, it, you know I, i've always been interested in the intersection of storytelling and game design and technology and in the mid 90s you know what was clear to me in was that you know we needed better character technology and back then that didn't exist so i built a library to do that i then left uh, and worked for a company in france called uh, callisto entertainment uh which was a really interesting experience because the way they approach popular culture is different in that you know it felt like the people there working there there was no difference between doing film or animation or comic books or video games right so it was all one thing Hmm. uh and uh that that was uh, great um I then uh, moved to Austria uh, because Eric, who once again gave me a job, uh, I started to work at uh, Jewwood in Vienna, uh, shipped a couple of games there, went to Roxa Games, uh, worked on some games there because uh, they had a Vienna studio until that got shut down. 
I blogged about that being shut down and that made me a footnote in a book about Rockstar Games because ah. it, it sort of exploded. It went viral, uh, which also means that uh, I, have, I I think I'm blacklisted from uh, Take-Two companies forever. What? Uh, because over the last you know, 15, 10, 15 years, I've occasionally applied for jobs at Take-Two companies and I just never get a reply. <laughs> oh, it's it's the blog guy. Yeah, the blog guy. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, the guy who pissed no, off, you know, Sam Houser. Screw that guy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Which, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. I, I, uh, after that, I did some freelancing. I set up uh, my own company with some friends. Uh, then I, uh, around the time, met my wife, uh, who's a, a game designer. Uh, she got a great offer to go work at... Um, Arcane in Lyon to work on Dishonored 2. Uh, so uh, we moved there. Uh, that's what she did. Uh, and then I, meanwhile, did some uh, freelancing again. Um, and then in 2016, we both heard about uh, Ubisoft Toronto. Mm -hmm. And we were like, let's do some research on Canada. And we basically went to Instagram and looked at restaurants in Toronto. We're like, <laughs> let's move there. This, this sounds fine. Yeah. You know? Uh, you guys got your priorities straight, I must say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know we didn't regret it. We we moved there, uh, so we or here I, was, I should say. Um, I worked on uh, Watch Dogs Legion. Uh, my wife worked on Far Cry Six. So that was my time at Ubisoft. Uh, when Legion ships, I worked in their academic research lab for a while, and then I, you know I was like, I want to do more with interactive storytelling. There were some interesting offers. Um, uh, I worked at a company called Possibility Space for about a year. I just recently resigned, uh, so this is uh, hot off the press, the first time I talk about this publicly. Oh. Uh, and I am, on February 1st, I am going to start working for a company called Super Evil Megacorp. Really? <laughs> yes, based in California. Uh, the company has been around for a while. Uh, they did a game called Vainglory. Um, and uh, I, you know, I get contacted by recruiters every once in a while, and usually I sort of look at the, you know, the, you know they go like, we need a game programmer. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, a, you know, I have a specific thing that I'm good at and that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. It's pretty clear on my LinkedIn profile. So usually I go, just go no. And, you know, and I, I said yes to this one sort of on a whim. And I was like, ah, oh, this company, they do mobile multiplayer games. Those are not really my thing. Then I, I talked to the... Um, the CTO, who it turns out is is Dutch, and oh. we actually sort of grew up around the same place. Like he was, I think, born in Forburg and then moved to Rijswijk, which is right next door. And I lived in Forburg for quite a while, mm -hmm. uh, and I enjoyed talking to him and to the other people on the on the team. And so I said yes. Cool. And uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. You're going to California, or is it? No, remote? no, I'm still staying. Yeah, it's all full remote. So yeah. Right. The nice thing about you know the Pandemic, if you could say that, right? But that's for, that's an interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, one of the upsides, the good thing about one of the few thing. upsides of the whole thing is that a lot of companies, you know, and, and I think they actually already did full remote. But like, it's it's a lot easier to work for a given company from wherever you are than it used to be. Hmm. It's still not, you know, you, you can't work everywhere. Like, not every company does it. But you know, I've worked for like no four different companies from home. And uh, like the, the biggest thing that matters is more like your time zone or that, you know, the country where you live. Mm. So, so yeah, that's, that's nice. So, so yeah, no, I'm staying here and, you know, going to work for a company that's headquartered in California. Yeah. Well, 
Good luck with that. Thanks. Sounds cool. Yeah. So, no Albion 2 then, <laughs> I guess. I don't think you could ever get the same conditions again that we had back then. Mm. And the same amount of insanity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I'm I'm glad that we we got what we got then. Yeah. Like, you know, and I'm 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 proud of what we made, but if I if I had to make it again, I would do it differently, right? And then it wouldn't be Albion, you know what I mean? So mm. yeah. Yeah. Do we do we have anything left to discuss, Joseph? I don't think so. No, I think not. Maybe uh, well, this was already discussed in your article, but uh luckily you did Albion because otherwise we wouldn't have the billion-dollar movie, which is Avatar, right? Yes, we didn't even mention <laughs> Avatar. Oh, right. <laughs> Actually, the first time realized that we basically did the story of Avatar before Avatar because someone posted it in some blog. And like, or was it on Reddit? I don't know. I was like, James Cameron stole the story of Avatar from, from Elvin. And I'm like, what a bullshit. Wait a minute. <laughs> oh, Right. <laughs> he totally did. He totally did. I have actually blogged about this because it, 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 I, I also saw this come up. Uh, and I would actually love to know, you know, it is a not legally binding way if maybe whoever works on that had played Albion because there are some parallels. But on the other hand, like I said, you know, we stole so much from aliens. Like, you know. True. Like, I, I consider this a fair deal with yeah. Cameron. <laughs> yeah, even, even if he would have, it's like sort of fair deal, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, no no official connections, obviously. I've never spoken to anyone who, who could confirm or deny it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I also think, you know, the archetypal story that is in Avatar is also kind of... I, I, I'm going to say it's... A, not quite as archetypal in Albion, for better or worse, right? But, you know, there are a lot of common elements. Um, but I think, you know, the design of the Navi and the Iskai, there's some similarities there. Mm -hmm. The whole, you know, science fantasy weight, I thought this was a sci-fi story and it isn't, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, there are some parallels for sure. And at least we didn't steal from Poco and us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Thanks a lot for your time. It was lovely talking about this uh, with you guys. So, yeah. Thanks a ton. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for listening. Of course. This was actually the first time that Eric and I talked about this together. So true. Awesome. Yeah, well, that was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. So thanks. Have a good evening. And uh, well, perhaps talk to you later. Thanks, yeah. guys. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.